Well, we are going to continue, in a way, our teaching through Exodus, but we, before we embark on the Ten Commandments, because that's where we are as we've been gone from chapter 1 all the way now to chapter 20, uh, we're going to set the stage a bit uh, for understanding the Old Testament law. Uh, before we get, in, get into the specifics of the law and work commandment by commandment, I want to set the stage so that we properly understand this law, and that's what we're going to do. This is part two of kind of part one of that introduction. Uh, but before we get any further, uh, I need the Lord's help, and so if you would, let's bow in prayer one more time, asking for particular help as we look at this Word together. So give us, Almighty God, that You would shine on us by Your Word, uh, that we would not be blind, say, at midday, nor willfully seek out the darkness and so put our minds to sleep, but that we may be roused daily by your words. This very day, would you rouse our souls, that you would stir up in us more and more to fear your name, and thus to present ourselves and just all that we do is a sacrifice of love back to you, that you would peaceably rule and perpetually dwell in us until you gather us to our heavenly home where there is reserved for us eternal rest and glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So as Christians, the question we've been reckoning with is, are we to obey all of the laws in the Bible? That is, as we, as those who take the Bible, this book, to be literally true and literally word for word the Word of God, are we supposed to obey all of it? And if we did, what would that look like? Well, this supposedly was the mission of A.J. Jacobs that went on for a calendar year. Only his desires, they weren't driven by some sincere faith or real desire to please God. Mr. Jacobs is a secular Jew, a self-professed agnostic. But he wondered, what would it look like to obey all of the rules and statutes in the Bible for a whole year? In the introduction to his book, The Year of Living Biblically, Jacob sets out on his mission. He said, my quest has been this, to live the ultimate biblical life. Or more precisely, he says, to follow the Bible as literally as possible. To obey the Ten Commandments, to be fruitful and multiply, to love my neighbor, to tithe my income, but also to abide by the oft-neglected rules, to avoid wearing clothes made of mixed fibers, to stone adulterers, and naturally, to leave the edges of my beard unshaven, Leviticus 19.27, he adds. He concludes it to say, I'm trying to obey the entire Bible without picking and choosing. Obey the whole thing. And as literally as possible, he wondered what that would look like. And I didn't want to buy the book and bother reading it, so I found a TED Talk where he gave the summary of it. And he summarized his findings in six thou shalts that he gleaned from trying to live out, in his perspective, the Bible for an entire year. Here were the things that he learned. First, he says he learned this, thou shalt not take the Bible literally, is what he learned. And his rationale, and this gives you more of his perspective, to quote, well, because if you do, you end up acting like a crazy person, was what he said. So again, this shows you his perspective. Now, he did come out with some maybe more positive assessments, uh, too. He said, thou shalt give thanks. He said, thou shalt have reverence, even though, again, he doesn't really believe in God. And thou shalt not stereotype. He went on to explain that needed to apply in particular to evangelical Christians, he said. We're a mixed bag at best, is what he put. But his last takeaway was this. He said, thou shalt 
pick and choose. He explains, and this one I learned because I tried to follow everything in the Bible and I failed miserably because you can't. You have to pick and choose, he claims. Anyone who follows the Bible will be picking and choosing. He says, the key is to pick and choose the right parts. Well, is he right? Should we follow and obey all of the Bible? Should we obey the Bible? If so, what part of it, all of it, or just some parts? And how are we supposed to know what the right parts are? Now, this assessment given by Mr. Jacobs, this is coming from a secular Jew, so none of his negative conclusions, I think, surprise any of us here. Of course, he's going to reject parts of the Bible. Of course, he's not going to agree with some of these laws. But here's the thing. So often, I think we as Christians, who actually do believe the Bible to be literally the Word come from God, I think practically speaking, we still wrestle with these same kind of questions. Are we supposed to obey all of the Bible? And literally so. And that's really the question we've been dealing with last week in this one. Are we to obey, in particular, the Old Testament law? We're about to embark in a long study of it, actually, as we go through Exodus 20 and following. Are we to obey the Old Testament law? If so, are we supposed to obey now all of it, literally? And if not, why not? What parts yes and what parts no? Or does God just expect us to just give it our best effort, pick and choose, and then we hope for the best? What role, if any, do these seemingly archaic Old Testament laws have to teach us about how to live the Christian life now? Or does it have anything to say? And so, no spoiler here, oh, it has a lot to say, even today. Actually, what we dealt with last week and this week, as you summarize it, is God's law still speaks. It still directs. It still teaches us. And it teaches us namely two things. To summarize, it teaches us where life is found. That's what we looked at last week. Namely, life's not found in you because you can't obey this thing. It is found in the one who did obey it for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. But now we'll turn in the following three points to discuss the law still directs us even now how we should live. God's law is still teaching. The question is, are we listening? So first, to review where we were last week, we saw that here's what God's law teaches us. It teaches us about God's character. We can still go to the law today and we still learn about the character of God. We saw this from Exodus 19 and the book of Leviticus. Because even as we are beginning into Exodus 20 and Israel is about to receive the law, we saw in Exodus 19, God was setting this up. And He said, I've brought you out of slavery, Israel, and I've brought you to Myself to be in relationship with Me. But that means you're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And what does that mean? They're going to represent God to the world, and they're going to be different and set apart. And what's going to make them different? What's going to distinguish them from the world? Well, it's all that follows after 19, the law of God. These laws that they are to abide by is what's going to distinguish them from the world. They're not going to live by the world's laws, the world's statutes, but God's. They must be different, and that difference was codified in these Old Testament laws that came from God's character. Because you remember, He says to Israel, you shall be holy, and what was the reason? For I am holy, the Lord said. So that had to be lived out in these laws 
to govern their whole life. But we also saw, and this is how the law still ministers and speaks today, it exposes our sin and our guilt. Yes, the law reflects the character of God, but when we stare at the character of God shown in the law, we see we're not like God. We are unholy. We are rebels. And not only are we mere lawbreakers, right? We saw this from Romans 7. The law actually exposes we have a bent on rebellion against God. That's what it means to be a sinner, and that's what the law is teaching us. But there's hope, too, even in the law. And we saw this, namely in Galatians chapter 3 last week, is that the law leads us and points us to Christ. Again, the law shows you, you can't be right with God by your obedience. Just can't happen. You can't be perfect enough. You can't love the Lord your God with all your heart long enough. So you need someone to obey the law for you. You need the Son of God from heaven to come under the law, perfectly obey the law, to be the only one who should not be judged and condemned by the law, but to be condemned anyway, taking your sins and being cursed on the tree, that the curse is no longer for you, but that you are forgiven. The law points us to Jesus. And in that way, as we find forgiveness in Him, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. The law can never touch us again. So in summary, the law is pointing us to where life is found. It's found by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not found in us. It's found in a law-abiding, law-satisfying substitute that Jesus worked on the cross. But now we turn this morning, as we turn the page, to consider, because the law not only teaches us where life is found, but it teaches us even today how to live. And we'll see that in the first place by noting this. The law binds us no longer. Galatians chapter 3, and we'll see this in Romans 7. Now, admittedly, this might not seem so intuitive, but this is the first thing that we need to figure out if we're ever going to figure out how to apply the law. So, this morning, we're going to spend a lot of time actually in the New Testament. Does this help us understand how we're supposed to apply the Old Testament? And the first thing we need to remember is that the law binds us no longer. We're no longer bound to the law. Because of Christ and His sacrifice, we're no longer bound to the Mosaic law. Now, that might seem strange, and you might object at first, but then we start to think about it. I hope none of us here made sacrifices of lambs literally at their house before they came. We don't do sacrifices anymore because Christ is the ultimate sacrifice, has laid down His life. We don't go back to that. Well, that's what Paul draws out so often in his letters as he explains the role of the law in the Christian's life. He uses words to say, you've been freed from the law. You're no longer under the law's bondage. The law has no binding authority on you as a believer in Jesus Christ. And to show you this, I'll just have to turn you to a couple examples. Let's look at Galatians chapter 3. Look in your Bibles in the New Testament in Galatians chapter 3. We looked at this passage last week as we uncovered how the law is our guide or guardian or tutor that leads us, that guides us to Christ. So, for example, we looked at Galatians 3.24 where we read this. So then the law was our guardian or tutor until Christ came in order that we may be justified from faith. We talked about this before, but the law exposes us. It shows we're sinners. It shows we're rebels. You can't be righteous before God by your deeds. 
But it shows us you need to be righteous by faith. By not what you do, but by what someone else does for you. And in that way, it's your guardian that leads you, that guides you to Christ. Remember, we talked about the guardian was this one who led the child from home to school and back. The guardian, the law, was leading us, showing us that you can't do this on your own. We need to take you to someone who can do it for you. The law takes you to the Lord Jesus. But here's the thing. As we look to verse 25... Once the law takes you to Jesus, in that sense, the law is not needed anymore. Look at verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. In other words, once the law did its job taking you by the hand, leading you to faith in Jesus Christ, the law doesn't have another job to do. That's what it was for. In that way, the law is kind of like an old roadmap. You guys remember roadmaps? Like there was a generation where you didn't have GPS on your phones. And so what we would do, we would go to AAA and get the state roadmaps from them for all the states we were going to go visit or drive through. And we had a tendency not to throw those maps away when we were done, but just to stuff them into the doors and the glove compartment of our minivan. So then six years later, when you go to clean out your minivan, you're like, wow, I even forgot we went to Arizona because I wasn't using these roadmaps anymore. Why? Because I didn't need them. And so I chucked them. I don't need a roadmap of Arizona when I live and mainly drive here in Virginia. And in that way, the law is kind of like the roadmap of Arizona. It leads you to your destination. And once you get home, once you're home with Jesus... You don't need that roadmap. You don't need that guardian any longer. Hence, he will say, we're no longer under the law. Let's look at another example of this. Look back in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Just flip back a little ways to Romans chapter 7. Paul, again, he's explaining the Christian's relationship to the law, and he gives his own analogy of what this is like, and he goes to marriage. And he talks about marriage laws and how they apply or then don't apply to someone who's now a widow. See, when someone is married, when the wife is married, the the marriage laws apply to her. She has an exclusive relationship with her husband, such that if she has any kind of intimate relationship besides with her husband, that's that's a, a grave sin. But everything changes when the husband dies and the marriage laws are gone. So, to see this, see if you can see any allusions to the law's temporary nature as we begin reading, and we're going to start in verse 2 of Romans 7. He says, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Again, Her attachment into the marriage law changes everything. That changes how she interacts with every other man on the planet. So as long as she's married, she has an exclusive relationship with her husband. And so, again, it would be wrong for her to go, be a great sin for her to be intimate with any other man. But as soon as her husband dies, she's free. And Paul says our relationship to the law is just like this. Look down to verse 4. 
Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, obviously Jesus, in order that we may bear fruit to God. So, You were joined by faith to Jesus Christ, but when that happened, you were then dead to the law because you've been married to another. That means the law no longer binds you. You've been set free from the law. Or again, look at verse 6. He says it so plainly. But now we, Christians, are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul here has in mind the the written code that was written by the very finger of God in those Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. He says, you are released from this law. It doesn't bind you. It doesn't address you in Christ. It doesn't apply to you. It's, you've been set free from this law. And again, that's why Paul will make such other sweeping statements in his letters like, and you've heard these before, I trust, Romans chapter 6, verse 14, for sin, he says, will have no dominion over you. Why? For you are not under law, but under grace. Or again, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 18, But if you were led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That means, in Christ, we are not under the Mosaic law directly. We are not directly under any of its stipulations, its statutes, its laws, or commandments. They don't directly apply to us. And so from this, two applications, or really implications, just immediately fall out. Number one, what does this mean? It means that you cannot go back to the Old Testament law. You can't. Because here's the trick. You can't go back and try and parcel out a piece of it and saying, well, I'm going to live by that part. I'm going to pick and choose and go by this piece and, you know, not go by another piece. Because as Paul talks about a relationship to the law in these passages, it's an all-or-nothing deal. You either get all of the Old Testament law, or you have, in that sense, none of it. Because consider this. In Galatians chapter 5, he warns the Galatians from going back to the law. And he picks up a parcel they were, in particular, wanting to go back to. Listen to this, because he warns them about this. So they wouldn't do this. This is Galatians 5, verses 2 and 3. He says, Look, I, Paul, so he's being so emphatic, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, that little piece of the law they were trying to obey, he says, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again, he says in verse 3, to every man who accepts circumcision, he's obligated to keep the whole law. You don't get to parcel out a part and say, well, I'll obey by that one and not do that one. No, it's all or nothing. You take part of the law, you got to go, you got to go all in. And as he's brought up, that's a big problem unless your obedience to God now is perfect. Because otherwise, then you're in a heap of trouble and the curse of the law is back on you. This is the logic of what he's talking with with the Galatians. It's an all or nothing dilemma. It's either all of the law or none of it. Now, that might seem easy enough for any of us to follow. I mean, who wants to go back to the law? It was pretty hard on us. 
It convicted us. It condemns us. It exposes us. Why would anyone want to go back under the law? Well, how can I say it? We're all recovering legalists, legalolics, if we could say it that way, who easily slip back wishing to relate to God by a law, by our performance, instead of putting that all aside all the time and resting on grace and faith and the work of Christ. And why is that so? Why would people reject that and move back into the law? But I think it's this. They don't find the freedom from the law as really freedom. They find it to be terrifying. It's like the person who was serving a life sentence on death row, and then by some work of the court, they are released, but they'd been in prison for maybe their whole adult life, and they don't know how to live in the free world. They just want to commit crimes, actually, to get back in prison. This is what we're like, because you understand the law, it's nice. It spells out all the details for you. What is the will of God? Well, I just go right to the law. It even tells me how I can eat my food. Without the law, then, you've got to be wise. You've got to make your own judgments. And for some, that's scary. And so we revert back to the Old Testament law. Or, just like it, what we'll do, we'll make up a whole new law to live by of our own making. And you know what that is. In both cases, that's what's called legalism. And that's a big problem because you understand, here's the other side of this, the other implication that falls out. It's one thing for you to return to the law in your own personal walk with God, but understand God calls you to live in a community, a church community. And so when you're subjecting yourself to that law, you are necessarily projecting it onto other people. And then when that happens, what have you done? You have begun to be your brother's and sister's judge. And you are binding their consciences to things that Christ, their master, has not bound them to. And that's a big problem. Paul talks about it actually in Romans chapter 14. There in Romans 14, Paul deals with these Christians who have very differing convictions about what foods they can eat or what foods they should not eat. And the thing is, the new covenant speaks nothing to this, and yet these Christians have created a law to themselves about what they should do and not do, and that creates these different problems. So look at this. Paul explains it in Romans 14. Here's the problem. Romans 14, verse 3, let not the one who eats, that is, can eat whatever they want, and their conscience doesn't convict them, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. You know, you look down on the person who has a weaker conscience, who has more limits on themselves. Oh, they're those legalists. And you look down on them because you can eat whatever you want. But then conversely, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats because God has welcomed him. And then it's easy for the one of the the Christians among us that try and put a, a really tight box and we have all of these special rules we abide by. It's so easy then to judge others because they're not as holy as we are because they don't go by the same standards we do. And Paul says, you're both all wet. You're both wrong. Why? He says in Romans 14, verse 4, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? 
It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make that servant stand. So, brothers and sisters, have your conscience issues been confused for law issues? That you are trying and judging your brothers and sisters, holding them to a standard that Christ their master has not commanded them to. Has Christ commanded what you're imposing upon others? Because if not, then you're judging them, then you're looking down on them, and that means you are the one who's disobeying the heart of God, not them. You see that? We must be very careful with any law, let alone the Old Testament law, asking and forcing its application. Well, as we continue this study. Here's the next thing the law teaches us. It's really, it points us to the Spirit. The Spirit empowers our lawful living. The Spirit empowers our lawful living. So, turn with me over to Galatians chapter 5. Because it might sound like when you say the law no longer binds us, are you saying the Christian that we have no law, no commands, no moral mandates of any kind, that we can just be a law to ourselves and do, or we are free to do whatever we feel like? No. No, 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 of course not. Though, that's a common misunderstanding of the gospel, one that Paul even, as he preached justification by faith alone, had to clarify more than once. And he does so here in Galatians chapter 5. Now, I'd love to walk through this whole chapter. We're just giving a survey here, so we can't do that. But look at verse 1 as it begins. Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And the yoke of slavery he's talking about is the Old Testament law. Don't go back to it. Christ has set you free. But then he clarifies as we drop our eyes to verse 13, understand what kind of freedom I'm talking about, he says. He did not set you free so you can just indulge your sinful desires. Look at verse 13 of Galatians 5. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only, clarification, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, for that sinful nature within you. Instead, through love, serve one another. Jesus did not release us from the Old Testament law so we can just go do whatever we want. Namely, follow our heart. He did not release us from the Old Testament so we could be lawless or antinomian. Actually, here, Paul says we've been called to freedom in Christ, a freedom that's, yes, it's a freedom from the law's bondage, it's a freedom from the law's guilt, but for what? He says, but through love that we would serve, or actually, more literally, you could translate that, would be enslaved to one another in love. Isn't that interesting? You're set free from the law, but so that you can enslave yourself to others in love. And then, if the contradictions weren't getting any stronger, notice where Paul goes next as he goes to verse 14. Here's his rationale. Look at verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in case you don't remember, that's a quote from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which, guess what, is part of the law. So, let me get this. 
Paul, you're saying we're freed from the law, so then we can enslave ourselves to others in love and actually so doing fulfill the law. You got it. See, we're freed from always fearing. We're freed from always wondering, have I obeyed enough of the law today? We're freed from trembling and thinking, am I right with God today? Have I done enough of the law? So you've actually been freed from the law to stop focusing on you. Because Christ has settled the matter at the cross. You're forgiven. He remembers your sins no more. And so you don't have to keep looking in and you can look up and out. And you can go serve others. And you're going out to serve others, not so you can rack up merit points for heaven. That's been settled at the cross. You're serving others because you genuinely love them like Christ loved you. Radically different, isn't it? When you are loving others in that kind of service, you're actually then fulfilling the very heart of the law itself. As he said, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So again, we're freed from the law, so then we can love others, which actually fulfills the law. You got it. But here's the thing. And here's the real big change as we come from pre-Christ to post-Christ. Because before, when the law would come to us, what did it do? We looked at it last week. The law was like a guy going into the cave of our soul and taking and poking that hibernating sin nature and roaring that horrible bear out in rebellion against God. It was riling up the sinful flesh and desires within us because we could never obey the law. But now, post-Christ, something's radically changed, and it's this. God gives His Spirit to live in you to cause you to walk in obedience. What does this look like? Look at what He says in verse 16 of Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Why? How does that work? Look at verse 17. He explains it. What's going on here? For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, and these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So what's going on here? The Spirit comes in as the gift of Christ, and He changes your wants. He changes your desires. He changes your heart. And this This is the key to biblical change. The key to biblical change is not more laws. It's not more stipulations. It's not more boundaries. Don't cross this line. The route to biblical change is heart change. It's desire change. It's new affections. And get this, that is something the law could never, ever do. It could never change your heart. It could never give you new life. Again, when God's command came before and said, do not do this, your wicked heart said, oh yeah, well, I'm just going to do that thing in disobedience harder. Spiteful rebellion. Because the law had no power to change. It just had power to expose. The law was useless to change us. But Christ can. The Spirit can. 
And actually, He does for all that trust in Him. The Spirit transforms our desires to make us more holy and so live out the heart and intent of the law. And so to take a step away for a second, you just have to ask, as I look at my life, is that what I see? Do I see that transformation? Do I see that change? Is what comes out of my life, is what's produced out of my life change? Because the Scripture says you must be if the Spirit's in you. And if you haven't been changed, then the Spirit's not in you. Because look at this. In Galatians 5, he's going to start talking about as these are at war within your heart, so to speak, the Spirit and, and the flesh. Before the Spirit got in there, you just gave way to the flesh. And what did that look like? Well, he lists it. Starting in verse 19, here's the works of the flesh. In case you're wondering, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and by the way, just things like these. It's not comprehensive. That's what your flesh is like. But then when the Spirit comes in you by the gift of Christ, by faith, you have this other desire working against all of those things. And in the main, what does it produce? The fruit of the Spirit. We know this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And note where he ends. And against such things there is no law. He's given you the Spirit to change you. If you haven't been changed, then be changed today. Which that means come to Christ. And if you have been changed, you're like the rest of us, you feel the battle. And the Spirit doesn't always win, evidently, right? But brothers and sisters, you cannot let the flesh win. And if you're wondering, how is that or why is that? I want you to hear this word again from verse 16. But you need to hear it as a promise because that's the way he's saying it. But I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If the flesh is winning in some area in your Christian life, some area of temptation, I guarantee you then that you are not submitting to the Spirit in that area. So if you are continually battling and you're just chalking it up to saying, well, that's just my besetting sin, brother, I'm telling you this morning, have you sought the Spirit's help? Have you sought the Spirit's help? Have you prayed to Him, Oh, Spirit, work in me through Your Word? Have you sought His help through the Spirit-inspired Scripture? Have you taken that Scripture, meditated on it, and put it in your heart to give the Spirit ammo to put that sin to death? Have you utilized the Spirit's indwelt fellowship here in the saints through biblical counsel and accountability? That's the gift of the Spirit. That's how He works. And when we're being led by the Spirit, you're going to crush those desires of the flesh. Brothers and sisters, by the power of the Spirit, may we walk in it. Because that's what He does. He empowers lawful living. But finally then, and where we'll have to end is this. We see the law provides principles still for our Christian lives then. And we're going to see that in a moment from 1 Corinthians 5. But as we've set up our various truths we're looking at this morning, I mean, we're at something of a conundrum, if not just what seems to be a contradiction. I mean, how is it that we are set free from the law 
so that it doesn't apply to us, and yet God's Spirit now works in us so that we fulfill the law. What's going on here, Rick? Like, boil it down. Does the Old Testament law apply to the Christian or doesn't it? And the answer is yes. Or you might say, it does and it doesn't. Depends what you mean. Or more precisely, we would say, the Old Covenant law does apply to the Christian's life, but in a qualified or modified way. Or conversely, the Old Testament law does not apply to the Christian's life in a direct way. And how is that or why is that? Well, here's what's going on. The Old Testament law code that we're about to unpack, Lord willing, in the coming weeks, months, really, as we go through the Ten Commandments and the laws that follow, that Old Testament law code goes with what we call the Old Covenant. And we, as believers in Christ, are a part of Christ's covenant, which is called the New Covenant, and they're not the same. And so that means the Old Testament law code, in all of its specifics, it goes away when the Old Covenant goes away. That's why Paul talks like he does, and he says, you're not under the law. And actually, that's what the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament promised. We'll talk about that more in a moment. For you see, to take us back to our study in Exodus, again, God has delivered His people from Egypt, and He's brought them to Himself. He's brought them into a relationship, and the biblical term for that is a covenant. What is a covenant? But it's just a promised contractual relationship. There's a give and take back and forth between the two parties. God promises to have Israel be His special people. Israel promises to obey God. That's part of this old relationship covenant. And the law code that follows then for Israel is the Ten Commandments and the laws that follow in Exodus that that deal with everything on how you're supposed to treat your slaves, to who you can sleep with, and how you're supposed to build the tabernacle. That's all part of the Old Testament law, and it goes with that old covenant system. Of course, what's the trouble? Israel disobeys God's covenant. They break it, the prophet Jeremiah says. And so in response, go look at this this afternoon in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. God promises to give a new and a better covenant. A whole new agreement and a whole new relationship with God, different than the old one they broke. He's going to make one that you can't break. Why? Because God's going to write the law right on your heart. And everyone in the covenant they're already going to know God, as we know now, because they're born again by the Spirit. And furthermore, what's the ground of all of this, he says, and it's where he ends that passage. God promises in the new covenant to forgive all of their iniquity, and as he puts it, this marvelous word, and remember their sins no more. The sin will all be done, it will all be paid, and somehow the omniscient God says it will be forgotten. That's what was on his mind when Jesus told his disciples in the upper room, when they had the Last Supper together, he said, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. 
Yes, the blood of Jesus' sacrifice that Cursey bore on the tree, that was the blood that started the new covenant, that inaugurated this new relationship with God built on permanent, accomplished forgiveness. So again then, does the Old Testament law apply to a Christian's life? No, not directly. Why? Because the people of the Old Testament law were part of the Old Covenant. That's not us. We're part of a better new covenant brought about by the blood of Jesus. And so what does this mean then? Can we just skip from Exodus 20 and get right back to, well, we did Matthew. Let's go to Mark this time. Do we have anything to do with the Old Testament law? How can, we, how can it teach us? How can we learn from it? Oh, we have so much to learn. But it's qualified. What I mean by that is, as we're going to think to apply the Old Testament law, this means you cannot just unthinkingly, in a qualified way, apply it, apply the Old Testament law to yourself. Or, nor can you just in an unqualified way apply it to your nation or to anyone else for that matter. That would be trying to go back under the old covenant. And again, Paul warned us in Galatians, once you do that, you're going back under a curse because you're rejecting the grace of Christ and the new covenant, trying to go back to the old one. You can't just slap Old Testament law on yourself or on other people. But here's what you can do. And this is the paradigms that we're going to be thinking through the Old Testament law. We look at any one of those laws given to Israel from the generic Ten Commandments to the most specific food laws, and you can ask this question. It's where we begin. What does the law teach us about the character of God? He said to Israel, you will be holy, for I am holy, and you're going to show it by this law. So any one of Israel's law, you can go back and trace it back to the character of God. And from there, we can then ask, how can I live out that same, here's the key word, principle? How can I show out that same character of God, but in my context, namely the context of the new covenant, which is different than the context from where the law was given in the old one? And I say this should be our approach because this is exactly what the apostles did as they applied the Old Testament law to Christians' lives. What principle of God is shown here, and how can we live out that principle in our new covenant context? Now, we're going to explore this as we go through the Ten Commandments one by one, Lord willing, in the coming months. So we're going to get in far more depth with this. But we have time to look at one passage where Paul takes the Old Testament law and applies it to the church. So I hope you're already there, but look with me into 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. To set for you the situation, this church that Paul has worked with, they are in big trouble in a lot of ways, and that's what's prompted his letter. In one way, they were excusing the gross sin of one of their members. He was sleeping with his mother-in-law. They were living and glorying in their antinomianism, in their lawlessness. And Paul says, this isn't right. You can't do this. And so what do you need to do? You need to unfellowship this guy. 
the so-called brother, you need to remove him from the church. It's a shame to Christ's name. And he gives them the command in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. So he tells the Corinthian church, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, Paul writes, with the power of our Lord Jesus, here's what you're to do. You're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, you're going to remove him from the fellowship of the church in hopes that he'll repent and come to be reconciled, which perhaps is what we see happen by the time of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But to boil this down, he's saying, this is what you got to do. You have to remove this guy from the fellowship, but then he's going to punctuate this need by going to the Old Testament law. And here's why you must do this. And then he quotes from the Old Testament law. He gives the Old Testament rationale for the reason why they need to do this. And we'll see it there. It's at the end of the chapter, actually, just to boil it down. Look at verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 5. He said, God judges those outside. In the context, he's saying the world can deal with those who are in the world. The implication is you need to deal with the people that are in the church. And then he gives this quote. You'll notice it in quotes there. Purge the evil person from among you. Now that command, purge the evil person from among you, that occurs several times, can you guess where? In the Old Covenant Testament law. But in that context, to be clear, the expected application of that word in the Old Covenant context was as clear as it was final. Listen to this. It's quoted several times. Here is the whole verse given in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 7. So you understand how it was to be applied in the Old Covenant context. Here's what it reads. Deuteronomy 17, verse 7 says, "...the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death." And afterward, the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil person from your midst. So in the Old Covenant, when they were to purge the evil person from their midst, what did this mean? They were to execute him. They were to purge them from the planet. They were to end the guy's life. And Paul says, that is the principle that demands you to excommunicate this guy out of your church, i.e., you're not supposed to go kill him. At least I hope not. But to remove him from the church fellowship. So it's the same law principle. Purge the evil person from your midst, but it's applied by two different peoples who are part of two different covenants that have two different kingdoms in that way. The underlying principle is the same. God is holy, so his people must be holy. And you have to remove that unholiness, but the way that gets done depends on the kind of covenant you have, the kind of people you have, the kind of kingdom you have. Do you have an old covenant people or a new covenant one? Remember, we talked about this last week. The old covenant was a theocracy. The church and state were one institution. So when you disobeyed one, you got the sword. Well, that's not the church today. The new covenant people, we don't bear the sword, we bear the gospel. And so a so-called brother who disregards God's commands and disregards God's character, they must be disassociated from the people and the church community, disassociated from God and the gospel itself, practically speaking means being removed from the membership of the church. Same God, same holy principle. He hasn't changed between the two covenants. 
but the covenants changed, and the nature of those people from the covenants changed, and so the law in that way changes or gets applied differently. So, understand as we're going to be walking through the law, there's a lot of laws out there. And it still, as Paul will quote in 2 Timothy, has so much to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, to change it, train us in righteousness that we may be equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work. But we cannot do that apart from this new covenant relationship with God, where He's given us His Spirit to slay those old sinful ways and lusts, and where He's fully forgiven us, such that He would not remember any one of our sins because of Christ anymore. And it's only because of what this table, right, that we're coming to represents. The body that was broken for us, the blood that was spilled for us that brought this new covenant to pass. As Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. So as I pray, I'm going to ask the designated men to come forward and to help us distribute these elements. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your law. We thank you for what your law does and how it exposes us and how it casts us alone at the feet of Christ. We thank you, too, that your law teaches us still that we might be walking in holiness and, two, convicts us to show us that we always need Christ. We confess once again we have sinned, but we confess once again, Lord Jesus, you're a greater Savior. It's in His name we pray. Amen.